Hello, and welcome back to A Texan Abroad. It's been quite the hiatus. I think uh, the last time I was on here was the day before the election and all of the madness that ensued afterward. I haven't had a chance to speak about it, but there's been even some more recent madness, which we will talk about now with uh, this podcast's favorite guests and whoever we, the person we often bring on when we're getting back from a hiatus, uh, and that's uh, the ever-lovable Bob, ever-knowledgeable Bob, and we're here to talk a little bit about 2021. Of course, we're going to start uh, with what happened the last day or so in D.C., but we're going to get to lots of different things, as you can read in the description. So without further ado, let me just throw that first question to you, Bob. First of all, Happy New Year and uh, belated yeah, Merry Christmas and all of that. But uh, so question number one that we've got here, what do you think is going to be the fallout from all the madness in D.C. this week or the last two days? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, we were just talking before we started. Uh, this is a pretty historic uh event uh you know what what went down in the capitol um in the actual physical capitol building yesterday um i would first of all though i would like to say that uh i don't think we should overplay it too much you know so uh even though legally i think the some of the people who were involved in at least who went into the building and into the chambers of congress and everything and they keeping in mind they interfered with the session a joint session of congress so they had to cancel sure. stop gavel out the session and uh, stop the proceedings so those people actually could be charged uh, you know from what i read online some law professors were giving comment comments that they could be charged with sedition just because it literally fits the textbook definition of uh yeah. they were interfering with congress uh, with the legitimate, you know, uh, procedure of Congress, and they were purposefully interfering for that purpose to stop Congress from doing something, right? So <clears throat> it probably does technically fit the legal definition. I don't know if they'll actually be, you know, tried uh, for, for any of that. But the thing I just wanted to highlight is I don't think we should overemphasize it because it was basically a mob that, you know, uh, President Trump directly incited in person. I mean, he was there physically. He was outside the White House. And then the mob marched down to the Capitol. He, he directed them. He told them, like, go to the Capitol. So, uh, you know, he was involved. And then these people went, but they weren't organized in the way that, you know, me or you, who have a lot of worldly, you know, international experience, you know, if you look at something like the color revolutions in the former Soviet space or other revolutions where there's like a real, uh, you know, organized effort with, you know, some kind of like government uh alternative government as in there's an actual like council of people who are working to install right government. a, a real kind of, that, of attempted yeah. coup if you exactly would, yeah. yeah there was nothing like that this was just some guys you could tell it, it's like the you know the domestic dog who thinks he's a wolf but like you know he catches some animal and he doesn't know what to do with it he doesn't know how to kill it or like a cat it was too domesticated <laughs> you know it's like it's like they got the prize but then they you could tell they're just like now we're just gonna take some selfies and like you know yeah. if they were smart they could if they want to do a real coup you you start you sit down in congress you gavel in a new session with the new people there you say this is a people's congress you know it's not uh it's not an elected congress but this is it's the will of the people to be here we're gonna have a session we're gonna you know 
do a vote of the people assembled here as the will of the people and say that the up former Congress is illegitimate, you know, the Congress of the U.S. because the vote was illegitimate. So, you know, you could go through those motions, you know, if you had some time, if they had, they could have occupied the building and like really had an armed, like try to stop them from getting them out of the building, you know, afterwards, if you had hundreds of people, you could put up some armed resistance. Anyway, you can like plot out different scenarios, but this was nothing close to that is the point I want to make. So, uh, same time, you know, in terms of what are the consequences. Um, so, again, I, I don't think it's it, it wasn't a real threat to U.S. democracy, but I do think it was a wake up call for a lot of people, uh, you know, especially among Republicans, but just in general uh, in the U.S. that, you know, there's a there was a whole segment of the right wing, I'd say, who were kind of holding their nose with Trump. Maybe they didn't even like him personally, but, you know, you, you say you're evangelical christian you know you might vote for him and i totally get that why you would vote for him it's in you know it, he's aligned with you on a lot of things you care about whether it's you know uh uh tax issues or the size of the federal government or whether it's mm -hmm. you know uh, putting justices that you approve of etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think there are reasons why those people uh were holding their noses all this time uh but i think the stench got so bad <laughs> yesterday that some of those people now are just like, man, even though I was holding my nose, I can just taste that shit in my mouth now. It's so bad. And yeah. uh, uh, so I think those people, it was a wake up call for some of those. We, we've seen already some of that in the last 24 hours, the news cycle. So I think one of the consequences we're going to see is the Republican Party really breaking from Trump uh, in a way that, you know, a few people had before. But I think we're going to see a mass move away, even it's the end of his term anyway. So you kind of expect that because he lost the election and it's unlikely he's going to be a major political figure uh, in the party. But I think there was a question of he has that base. Uh, maybe he'll retain a lot of influence. And now I think there's uh, it, maybe we don't have the total answer to that question. Maybe he will have some influence, but I think there's going to be some real pushback trying to get him out. Uh, so there's going to be a real force acting against him that there wasn't before. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you hit on the three important points two of them that seem to be almost kind of contrasting or fighting against each other. One of which, you know, the first of which is this is historic. Like, you know, you, I saw, uh, you know, somewhere that it was basically the first time that the Capitol building has been attacked since the war of 1812, right. Uh, in this kind of way. So obviously this is not something that happens every day, especially in a place that is kind of holds itself up as the kind of shining light of democracy, right. Of, of organized protest, of changing through, um, you know, legitimate means, not, uh, you know, some sort of revolution or anything like this, but as, you know, organizers, organizing voting and shifting of power in legitimate means. Um, and so it is historic and it is awful and it is terrible, but I think you also hit on the point uh, they went in, they didn't know what the heck they were doing. It was clearly a bunch of kind of yokels, hillbillies, whatever you want to say, people who didn't have any idea about what to do once they got in there. They were looking for their five minutes of fame and they're going to get their five minutes of fame in probably 10 years in federal penitentiary because they were stupid enough to actually photograph themselves and send it out on their own social media and other things. Like um, just looking at it from a lawyer perspective, like, my brother often says people do so much stupid shit and put it on social media when you really shouldn't. And this is the textbook definition. Don't store, don't break multiple federal laws. Take pictures of yourself doing it in very distinguishable clothing 
and then post it on your own social media. Like that's the most ridiculous thing you could possibly do. But a lot of people did it. So clearly I think it was um, a bunch of radicals, a bunch of crazy people um, who didn't have any idea about what to do or the, even the ramifications of their actions. And I think the third thing that you mentioned, which is the most important, I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic guy in general. So I would try and look at the, uh, the bright side of this, look at it through kind of um, the positive potential ramifications. And I think, as you said, for a long time, even the stuff you saw with a, basically a lot of senators who were or representatives who were talking about not certifying the vote, right? They were like, you know what? We, we think we can side with Trump on this idea of non-certification. Maybe a couple of us will not certify and it will still get certified. Everything will actually transition, but I can appeal to my base as the senator or representative uh, or the Trump base, I should say, um, and kind of secure that, lock that up for the next election in two or four or six years or whatever, and uh, by just voting against it. And what you saw was those Republicans, even Mitch McConnell, who has basically kind of enabled Trump through his actions and his words over the last four years, came out and basically just said, nope, enough is enough. Like you said, the stench is too much. Like, and I think the really positive thing that will come out of this is that now you're going to see the difference between Republicans and Trumpians or whatever you want to call the followers of Trump. I think you're going to start to see, I often said, I've said it and I've argued with, you know, our, our friend Bodner, I've argued with him a little bit over the kind of coverage of the vote for Trump since the election. And one of the things I've been saying is, it seems like everyone wants to portray the fact that Trump got however many millions of votes is like a big surprise. But when you have two parties, voting for Trump isn't necessarily voting for Trump, it's voting for conservatism, for, for Republican, the Republican Party. Uh, there was no distinction before now. Now, and Republicans were, I think, a little bit scared uh, to distance themselves because there was such an ardent base of Trump. And you combine that with their normal conservative base and that allows them to be put into power. Um, and now I think you're going to start to see that separation. Uh, you're going to start to see that distinguishing um, between those who support Trump and those who are just naturally conservative and Republican. And I think that's actually a good thing, because I think eventually now you'll start to see that Trump's base, the kind of real Trump extremists, it's not very big. Right. Um, it's it's actually, I think, a lot smaller than most people think. And now that you have even again, congressmen who are stepping back, even Pence himself, you know, uh, standing up and saying and the fact that there is talk, I don't think they'll actually, you know, invoke the 25th. But the fact that there's at least talk of it means that someone's approached Pence about the idea and cabinet members about the idea. And I think uh, all of that indicates to me that there's this is probably the end, right, of the kind of Trumpian idea. Um, there was a question before, could Trump become a kingmaker? Could Trump uh, still have some sort of soft power um, with certain parts of the electorate? I think that idea has kind of come, you know, has faded now a lot more than it was like three days ago is what I would yeah. say. 
Yeah, and <clears throat> let's not forget uh, that, uh, you know, obviously we're discussing the big news of yesterday, but the day started out with the Republicans with, losing Congress. Yeah, they yeah, lost that... the two seats in Georgia. So already at the beginning of the day, you know, when I was I was starting to read this stuff, like what's going on, what's the news coverage? There was already people, you know, uh, commentary by leading Republicans uh, already kind of breaking with Trump because, you know, it's like we thought Trump was about winning. He's always talking about deals and winning and let's win this, let's win that. And he's just losing everything. So it's like, why are we selling our souls to, you know, uh, I don't want to say to the devil. I'll say it, you know, my personal opinion. Yeah, it's uh, that's it's a bad it's a horrible Faustian bargain for the Republicans to be doing this. Uh, and it was predictable, I think, in my opinion, four years ago, I thought this was going to end disastrously. But anyways, you know, there was a political bargain that was being made by, you know, like Lindsey Graham, even yet, even yesterday said it that he, you know, we had a long journey together, but now enough is enough. And I think even just the fact that, you know, you losing control of Congress and losing the reelection presidency, apparently that hasn't happened in like 80, 90 years to lose sure. both, yeah. you know, houses and the presidency. So you know that's uh it's already kind of uh the benefits of the trumpian bargain were kind of outlived and uh then you add on top this kind of outrageous incident that the president directly incited like in person it's not even his twitter account he was literally talking to a crowd that then that crowd marched over to the capitol and you know broke in so it's like you know i think it's well and uh, even even the stuff that he said yesterday and even the stuff he said today where he quote unquote denounced it or whatever, he still is giving the people an out by, or kind of a reason because he's still not acknowledging the legitimacy of the victory of Biden. Right. He's still like, I, I absolutely disagree with the results of this election, but what you did was wrong. Like something like this. And I mean, that's, I don't, it's insane. Yeah, in his video address, he said, we love you to the protesters. He literally said, yeah, we love you. And, you know, this election was stolen from us and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, he was egging them on. And that's why he got blocked from social media, you know, so. uh, Yeah, which is another thing. I mean, the fact that a sitting president, I mean, I I would say not a, a sitting president, a sitting official of any kind. Like, I would be curious to know, like, in terms of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now, of course, the president has a much bigger following. So perhaps it's more important. But even on a local level, I don't know that there's like some even local politician who's literally been blocked from all of those social medias because of the uh, incitement of violence and just misinformation that he's been spouting. And I think that speaks volumes about the type of person that Trump uh, is. Uh, and for that matter, has always been. I mean, I think a lot of people are not surprised with the outcome, the the kind of situation where we find ourselves now. I would say I'm a little surprised about uh, the fact that people were still willing to do something like they did yesterday. Uh, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that such people exist. I know there's lots of people who are willing to do really stupid and dumb things. I think it surprises me more that there was not more force uh, in keeping them out of the Capitol building. Um, I think that's a big question. I've seen a lot of videos of, of them kind of semi letting people in, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a huge question. Of course, there's the double standard idea, right? Uh, with uh, the Black Lives Matter protests that happened last summer. 
and how the Capitol building and other places looked at that particular time. And I think that's another issue that needs to be addressed and, and talked about to a degree. But again, I'm much more of an optimist. And I like to think about when you have something that's this awful, what comes from it? And if, if it took these idiots storming the castle, so to speak, uh, in order to ensure that Trumpianism, uh, Trumpism, or whatever you want to call it, and his bigotry and his loudmouthness will be separated from Republicans, that like that's the, the straw that broke the camel's back that will ultimately separate the political party, not one that I really associate myself with, but one with, I, I, I understand some of the, at least their economically conservative ideas. Um, but if that's the thing that causes the permanent separation and forces Trump to fade into a corner somewhere far away, you know what? That's worth it. Um, and I know that four people lost their lives uh, you know, we've been passing messages on one of our chats about the, the, the woman who uh, was shot and killed. Um, that's sad. Uh, it's tragic. But again, when you do stupid shit, then, you know, results, um, you get the results you kind of, uh, you deserve sometimes. And so, uh, and again, if, that, if it took these kinds of actions to get to where we're going to go in six months or, or in two years where Trump is kind of just a bit of a clown show yelling on YouTube or something like that, I'm fine with it. I think that is a, a much better thing than having the next two or four years where Trump is semi a kingmaker and there is no separation from the Republican Party. Um, I think this is uh, as terrible as the day was, as awful as uh, an incident uh, as it has been, I think maybe that's actually a, a, a small price to pay for the good that can come from it. Um, so, well, actually, as you said, the, um, the other main point that, that actually um, started all of this um, was the fact that Georgia elected two, not one, but two Democratic senators in a, in a runoff where actually most of the time liberals don't do don't fare quite well, especially in the South in terms of runoffs. Runoffs in general have a pretty low turnout, um, but there was about from everything I read about ninety percent of the turnout for the presidential election was what they had for these two runoff seats in uh, in the Senate. Um, so the next question we get to is what will come from the first calendar year of a purely democratic government. That is, four years ago when, uh, when uh, Trump was elected, they had the presidency, the Senate, and the House. Two years later, they lost the House. Yeah, And now, two years after that, they lost the presidency and the Senate. So we're talking full democratic government here. So what do you think the first calendar year is going to bring with Biden having, now it's not a huge majority, uh, actually, as we talked about in our political podcast we did months ago, um, in the House, uh, the Republicans actually gained some seats back. But in the Senate, it's, so it's, is it 50-50 or is it 51? It's 50-50. With yeah. Kamala being the tiebreaker, yeah. Right, so be the tiebreaker. you're talking about um, if there's a, moderate liberal then they can keep things in check right from the senate perspective yeah yeah that's exactly right and uh so yeah i think the you know uh i guess the thing i would say is yeah the even if it was going to be 
you say the Republicans took those two seats in Georgia, you know, the Democrats could still do certain things if they could like peel off one or two to, you know, uh, Republicans. Right. And so what now the situation is a little reversed, which is uh, the Democrats can get things done as long as literally all of their block votes together. Right. They can't lose a single person. So that means the most, uh, you know, right leaning or central centrist uh, Democrats have kind of the most say in or at least they're the, you know, kind of ballast that's going to determine where the ship goes. And, uh, you know, there's a guy, I think it's sort of the senator from West Virginia. I, I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, has already been kind of flagged as he's probably the one who's going to be the, uh, you know, the kind of decider on a lot of these things. And, he, yeah. you know, he's pro-life. He's, you know, like relatively small government, all those kind of things while still voting Democrat. So, yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it's kind of the best outcome, like that, say, like business wants to see in that what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to do any major reforms because you're not going to be able to do Medicare for all or, you know, pack the court or any of that stuff. All of that was already off the table in November. We knew that it was going to be even if the Democrats won these two seats. They're going to have this like the ultra razor thin majority. Uh, so you're not going to be able to do anything ambitious at the same time. Now that they do have the 50 seats uh, plus the vice president, that means that certain procedural things that have like we see a lot of the gridlock in the last several years, like confirmations of judges and appointments, mm-hmm. of cabinet members, you know, that stuff can just sail through. So uh, the good news is hopefully the kind of crazy circus stuff on those minor, uh, which should be, you know, historically have been minor kind of you know, confirmation proceedings are tend to be pretty relatively sane, you know, except for Supreme Court has always been a little contentious. But, you know, if for Sorry. whatever, Secretary of the Interior should not be a contentious process. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be yeah. like a 10 hour hearing. And uh, so I think we're going to see that stuff fly through. And I think that's good for everyone because it, it'll give, again, some it'll help lower the temperature in the in Congress because there's not going to be a lot of debate on some of these like things we shouldn't even be debating. And uh, on the big issues, if you know, I mean, keep in mind. So for like you brought up that President Trump had, you know, the Republicans had both houses and Trump campaigns, if you as you remember, on repeal and replace Obamacare. And they never did that. So Obamacare still exists. It was never repealed, even though the Republicans controlled all of the bodies you need in order to do that. Right. So uh, both both chambers mm-hmm. of Congress, uh, the presidency and, you know, obviously the Supreme Court is not that political, but it's kind of understood the Supreme Court is more right-leaning now, so they could even instruct sure. that. Anyways, that never got done. And so, uh, and that's because healthcare is uh, enormously complex and there's a lot of, you know, vested interests uh, and there's a lot of popular resistance to changing anything, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very hard political problem to solve. So I think if any of these hard problems, uh, they're either not going to go anywhere or it's going to need a bipartisan solution. So we're not going to see any major like uh medicare for all or let's uh you know get rid of student loan debt completely or whatever we're not going to see those kinds of things which would is good because if we did say the democrats got like 60 seats and they did a lot of this a progressive agenda it would like totally piss off the other side right and we'd see even more polarization so it's probably a good thing that if we're going to see any major legislation it's going to have to be bipartisan and then the second mm-hmm. thing that's a good thing is the minor stuff 
is going to sail through and there's not going to be a lot of debate. So if there are going to be debates, it's going to be about the big stuff, which maybe it won't ever get passed. But at least they'll at least the, the discussion should be on the real issues like immigration reform, healthcare reform, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, foreign policy, that kind of thing. Well, that's I think that's the interesting thing that I, I wonder about Biden. Like when you ask me what I think will come of the first calendar year, my initial uh, inclination is if you believe Biden, I think you'll you'll basically see a turning of the issue, turning of governments to the issues that matter, as you said, right? And even like healthcare reform uh, or gun control or immigration, all of these kinds of things, heck, stimulus checks and things like that, I think you'll see a refocusing on these issues and open, honest dialogue and a much more kind of centrist idea. If you believe, now he's kind of made him out to, made himself out to be the, you know, the great unifier, right? I wanna bring people on the left and the right together. That's why I ran, that's what I wanna do. Uh, I don't wanna forget about those people on the right, those conservatives who don't even acknowledge that I'm their president. Um, I think that's a good thing. Now, the question is, uh, in, in my mind, is he going to live up to that? Is he going to even, uh, if there is some pressure from the far left, now that they do have, even though it's a, a very minor, um, you know, um, majority in, in the Senate, is he going to get some sort of pressure from that side of the aisle to kind of try and pass even some smaller, but more, not radical, but more uh, kind of extreme left ideas, or at least talk about them. Um, I don't know. And, and I think that's an interesting question is, was it a cam campaign spiel that he wanted to be a unifier or does he really want to do it? And now I don't know Biden that well. There's plenty of people I know that don't like him. There's a lot of people I know that do like him. He seems to me to be pretty genuine. That's one thing that I would say. Now, again, it's all speeches and, and other things and things that I've read. And so, of course, someone can seem genuine and not be genuine. Absolutely. But I think he would, I think he genuinely wants to help the country heal. And I think that's one of the things that made him very appealing as a candidate is he's not someone who, like Bernie, like Warren, um, even like my favorite candidate, Yang, who wants to come in here and break the foundation and rebuild things from from the bottom up. I think that he wants to, let's get government back to normal and let's start talking about the things that need talking about, but doing it in a way we're addressing the issues and we're not pointing fingers and yelling and trying to blame other people um, and just saying that anyone who disagrees with my idea is evil, right? He wants to get rid of that kind of idea. At least that's Again, the way that I understand his, his ideas for his presidency. Uh, now, again, is that a campaign shtick or is it actually something that he wants to do? Mm -hmm. I think it's closer to the second. And I do think that you'll see, as you said, um, the easy stuff fly by, right? Confirmation processes. Who knows when he's going to get to nominate his first judge? Uh, of course, that will probably be contentious, as it always is. But in terms of cabinet nominations and other things, um, even, I think, uh, passing budgets and stimulus checks and things like that, I think you'll see some of those things that 
sometimes were debated just because there were two sides of the aisle, right? That it was not really, even a lot of the times budgets and the stimulus check kind of stuff, like those things are often debated, not because we have a fundamental disagreement on, on the issue, but just because I see blue or I see red and, and that's kind of a problem. I think you'll see a lot of that go away. Um, and turning to the issues. Uh, and I think actually it's a good thing to have um, such a small kind of percentage of a majority, right? Where you have, I mean, especially in, uh, even in the House, but especially in the Senate, you have people who are Democrats that are moderates and Republicans that are moderates. And so the conversation is going to actually center around uh, kind of moderate ideas, right? Bringing people from the right a little bit closer and from the left a little bit closer, right? Um, and I think that's, that's what politics probably should be. I'm a firm believer that the answer to most questions is in the middle. Um, I'm not an extremist by any stretch of the imagination. And I think conversations uh, need to be had in that area. And I'm hopeful that this, not just generally a democratic government, but this particular democratic government that has a little bit of kind of keeping itself in check because it's a one person, right? One senator decides that you've gone too far and it's over, right? And you can't get it passed. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually kind of a good thing. Yeah, 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 I agree. And the one thing I would uh, just add, uh, you brought up, and uh, probably I should have said the very first uh, in answer to the question of what's going to happen this year. I think the COVID uh, legislation and the stimulus is going to be the number one priority, um, especially like what, what we saw, you know, uh, in terms of what happened with uh, McConnell not wanting to do the $2,000 and the uh, you know, yeah. that, that directly contributed probably to the Republicans' defeat in Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the Democrats are going to have to, you know, they basically have promised at this stage we're going to do more uh, direct, you know, payments, stimulus payments to individuals and uh, probably some extra health measures, you know, healthcare kind of uh, funding or, you know, et cetera. So I think we're going to see COVID as the first thing they take up and then, you know, and then fly through the confirmations and all that. And then, you know, yeah, if they want to do anything else, it's going to have to be exactly as you say, uh, it's going to have to be catering to the the most moderate people in the Senate. So, you know, if we see anything on healthcare or education or uh, defense, you know, realignment or whatever, all those things are going to have to be huge compromises. We're not going to see any radical uh, reforms. So, well, just generally, I mean, getting into the question three, do you think that there's going to be more or less polarization because of this. Like, do you think, whether it's the events of the last couple of days, just the, the entire last four years, and we can talk about it from a US perspective and even from a global one, do you think that 2021, with the fact that we've spent this last year and, and perhaps the strangest year of our generation, um, and of a lot of generations, I would say, um, because of of COVID-19, do you think there's going to be more or less polarization in the U.S. across the world and across the world uh, in the next year? So I think uh, I'll kind of give a qualified answer uh, <laughs> from my side. Uh, yeah, the classic dodge. But so I think the the events we just we've just seen and kind of the political, like we're saying within the federal government, the political uh, sphere in the U.S. I think we're going to see 
less polarization because of what we've already talked about. But in general, I think the long-term trend towards more polarization, more extremism, you know, rise of populism, I think that's going to continue. So I think we might see a little bit of a lull or slowdown in the U.S., but I think the, the bigger forces, uh, in particular, the Internet and social media, are going to continue pulling, uh, you know, as like acting as a centrifuge, flinging people apart. Um, I don't think we're going to see any change. Uh, that might ultimately change, you know, years down the road. But I don't think in 2021 we're not going to see see those uh, forces stop. And the the one thing I would, because since we both are history fans, the one um, comparison, you know, I've seen come up many times is, uh, you know, we're living through an era that was like when the printing press was invented. So now, if you sure. read a history book, you know, there'll be a chapter on the printing press and how that led to, you know, Gutenberg, Gutenberg's Bible. And then, you know, people were doing self-study of religion. And so you get this whole Protestant reformation because like now, why do mm -hmm. I need to go to church to listen to the Bible? I can read it myself because there's thousands of copies everywhere. Why do we need to like listen to this priest? And maybe we should start our own church, et cetera. That led to the 30 years war and like major changes in governments like England, you know, breaking off from the church and declaring their own church, et cetera. So, I think we're living through a similar period now where we have new technologies that are radically enabling kind of radical changes in society. And those are going to take decades to play out. Right. So it's not a, uh, it's not like uh, one president determines any of that. So again, Trump, I think is, you know, a reflection of the situation. He's not like the cause of all the issues we have in society. So, uh, but I think, no, no, no. I think he's definitely a symptom. He's not a cause, right? He's right. He was kind of a, a, a light that shined pretty brightly on some of the negative aspects of the current state of society. Um, I think he even added to the problem. So I think he sure. actually had a gut instinct of how these of the trends of society and he was able to manipulate them and use them and ride them to power. Right. And yeah. he, he really understood that at a gut level, I think, uh, in a way that other people are just catching on now after Trump. I think everyone gets it now. But he was a he definitely picked up on it before most people did and uh but i think those so you know so i think those longer term trends uh, the, the kind of changes in global society we're seeing are not you know those are here to stay for a while right it's not it's not something that goes away in six months or a year that's going to be you know 10 20 30 years uh, kind of we'll to see how it plays out no i think that's right i think i mean as you said the you know the internet, social media, things like this, I think you're right. I think it's actually more transformational even than the printing press was. In the printing press and a lot of the things that came along with the publishing or the ease of publishing of books and information at that particular time, I think the internet is that, you know, times a thousand um, because you've given the ability to kind of... Um, not just to study and to learn and to read, but to congregate, to reinforce, right? Uh, the echo chambers that we typically had, right? If you were um, using the word again, like a hillbilly, um, which is, I'm not trying to be derogatory towards anyone who comes from a country town, but uh, regardless, if you were like a hillbilly in some backwood, I'll even use my own state, backwood Texas town, like your echo chamber, was that place where you lived. It was your parents and your uncles and your cousins and whoever else was in that little circle. So you had a very small echo chamber, but it was there nonetheless. And 
it kind of reiterated and reverberated your ideologies and things like that. Now, those people can share and spread with people all over the world. Now, the internet has caused more good than it has harm, that's for sure. I mean, I can't even imagine what we would have done during this pandemic if we didn't have some of the technologies to help with work and school and, um, and just allowing people to connect to avoid depression and other kinds of things. That being said, there is a lot of harm that comes from it, right? And I think polarization um, happens when other people find, when people find other people who believe their terrible ideas, right? Yeah. And who reinforce the fact that extremism might be right, yeah? Um, that being said, I do think that um, compromise is something that, uh, will kind of be, as we just talked about, will be brought to the forefront over the next at least calendar year, hopefully two years, maybe four years in the American government. Um, I think you'll see that people will start to recognize why compromise and moderation, moderate ideas, uh, open dialogue about the you know, positive and negative effects of any particular thing uh, is, is good. I, th I hope that that's what you'll see in the U.S. Now, I don't think you'll have a decrease in, in necessarily the viewpoints of polarized people, but I do think you'll have a more kind of coming to the middle over the next year in the U.S. Whether that spreads to the world, I'm not sure. I, I think, um, you know, it will be interesting to see how the U.S. and how Biden, uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy and other things, reach out to the world after Trump has spent four years kind of trying to give them the Heisman, so to speak, and just saying, uh, America is number one. I only care about America. Everything else, go screw yourself. Whereas I think Biden has the idea to unite people, not just here or not here. I'm in Turkey, you're in Russia, but in terms of in America, but also kind of to put America back at the forefront of trying to unite the world and kind of some common goals. Um, I don't know. I, I think in the U.S. you'll see a little bit less. You'll see more, um, again, shifting towards the middle. But you're right in terms of worldwide and individual uh, polarization and viewpoints. I think that's going to take decades until we start teaching our children um, a lot more about critical thinking, emotional intelligence, conflict resolution, and some of the things that should be taught in schools. I don't think you're going to see a lot of polarization decrease uh, anytime soon, yeah. Um, yep. Well, that leads us to uh, perhaps the story of 2020 and, uh, and COVID-19. What do you think, uh, I, you know, now we have, let's see, the US has two vaccines that it's rolling out, correct? Mm -hmm. And the UK has two as well that they are rolling out now? Yeah, so um, the U.S. is now, as of today, it was like five and a half million people vaccinated, something like that. Right. Uh, Israel, I've been reading, has been doing a phenomenal job. How do you think, it looks like they're going pretty well right now. How do you see the rest of the vaccine rollouts going? So, uh, you know, I think it, uh, like if, you, if we zoom out again and look at the big picture, I think most of the world is going to be vaccinated. Not most individuals, but most countries are going to have enough vaccination to get up to like roughly the herd immunity level of something like 60% uh, by the end of the year, I would guess, except, you know, in certain developing areas where it's not so much, it's not that there isn't vaccine available globally to supply 
it's just that that la you know the last mile or whatever you want to call it that is to say you know you need a health clinic with the refrigerator and stuff yeah. and qualified nurses to give the vaccination and in some part, certain parts of the world that doesn't really exist so there's a that that end uh consumer healthcare consumer infrastructure is lacking uh in certain areas so but I think in the developed world, you know, we're going to see very rapid rollout by the summer and then kind of the, you know, uh, middle, what used to be called the second world, maybe. But, you know, the kind of like middle countries uh, uh, developed emerging markets, you could say, uh, we'll see by the end of the year. And I think it's going to go faster than people think. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's going to proceed quite quickly and we're going to see, you know, hundreds of millions and billions. We'll probably get to a billion vaccinations, I bet, before before the end of the first half of the year. Uh, yeah. Yes. Do you think that the um, you think there will be an issue about kind of uh, anti-vaxxers, about people vaccination skepticism, if you will? Do you think that's going to slow anything down? I, yeah, I think it's obviously, uh, you know, that's a big deal. I think, in, you know, the figures in Russia, I just know, are something like half of Russians have said they're not going to get it. Um, so uh, and in the U.S., too, I'm sure a lot of people are not going to get it. But again, the, um, you know, the way herd immunity works is that you don't need everyone to get a vaccine. You need enough people to have immunity that say one person gets sick, then, you know, there's this, the idea of the R not right. Where, um, right. for if one person gets COVID and there's no immunity out there. So say you were patient zero, like the first person in Wuhan, you tended to infect like 2.1 people or something right and and then that person infects two and then it spreads exponentially but imagine if though there are two people but one of them is vaccinated so okay that guy doesn't get sick so now you just spread it to one so then then he spreads it to just one and then it's one and there's no exponential growth right so right. Uh, and in fact if half or more of the population is vaccinated say 60 percent then it's actually a you know, most people you come in contact with are not going to get it. So it actually will die off eventually, right? So one person yeah. will never even spread it to very many people, even if they get sick. So, you know, I think, yes, there, obviously there are going to be consequences. Uh, the anti-vaxxer thing is, uh, you know, uh, in my mind is ridiculous, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I think the we should keep our eye on the eye on the ball. And the goal is to get a good chunk 50, 60% of people either vaccinated or including those who have been sick who have antibodies. And we still don't know how long the, you know, um, yeah. immune response, it's not just antibodies, it's uh, T cells and stuff too, but we don't know how long the immune response lasts. Uh, so that's a little bit worrisome. And even the vaccine, we don't know, you know, it might be where you have to get a yearly booster like the flu. Um, so, but as long as we have 50, 60, 60%, that means in the developed world, it's probably going to be controlled. But I would just uh, tag on to that, the caveat that, uh, you know, COVID is not going anywhere. So uh, I think we should all realize that it's going to be around for years to come. So you're not going to eradicate it everywhere. Not everyone's going to get vaccines, even the developed world. And it may not be a major problem like it is now. Like like the U.S., I think it was 4,000 deaths yesterday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. first time. But um, it's still going to be it's going to be around and it's going to be something that's going to pop up in the news, you know, with regularity for the next five years, I'm sure. So uh, we should just be aware of that. Uh, but as you know, if you get the vaccine, you should be good to go. And I think most people will by the end of the year. Yeah. And, you know, I would say about the anti-vaxxers, like um, I, I do think that there will be some 
percentage of the population, especially people who are uh, in lower risk groups and categories that don't think that it's going to affect them either way if they get it. And you know what? Uh, to some degree, they're right. I think the main groups uh, that we need to target for vaccination, uh, which is, looks like most countries are doing, are those at, at the most risk of dying or at least being hospitalized. And I think when push comes to shove, uh, actually my mom and her husband, uh, her husband, my stepdad, is a walking, talking, pre-existing condition. Like, I mean, he's had multiple forms of cancers, uh, he's, I mean, he's had a lot of different things, um, but he's doing fine. And he act, and my mom actually just uh, got told they're getting their vaccination this week. And I think, um, truth be told, that especially people who are in those categories, who are in those camps, whether it's because of age or pre-existing conditions, I think when you put the idea of getting a vaccine in front of them, it's very easy to say, I'm not going to do something because I believe that this is wrong. Then when someone says, so this little shot could save your life. It's like, hmm, well, do I really believe that I'm not going to take it, right? Like it, it, when, you know, when rubber meets the road, as they say, um, am I really not going to take it? I think that's a difference, right? Like when you're polling someone and asking them, do you believe the vaccine is safe? And they say, no, um, that's one thing. But if you're obese, if you've got a pre-existing condition, if you're, you know, 80 years old or 70 years old or whatever the case may be, and they say, do you want a vaccine that will save you from this virus with 95% certainty? Yeah, give it to me. Yeah, I, I think that's what you're going to see in terms of the rollout. I think the one question is about the kind of uh, medical infrastructure that you have, and it looks like most states are handling it pretty well. You know, there's been some small snafus, but I think for the most part, it will be go off without a hitch. Uh, you're right, developing world, undeveloped world. Uh, there's issues with storage, with um, transportation, with actually delivering the vaccinations with nurse and medical personnel and things like that. Um, I think a lot of that hopefully gets sorted uh, as countries, as kind of first world countries start to kind of relieve themselves from the problem and the strain a bit. I hope that they turn to those other countries that need it and help them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I suspect things will go off, not perfectly, but pretty well. And I think uh, by the, as you said, first half of the year, we'll look at a lot of people, maybe a billion, maybe more, who have gotten vaccinated. And uh, I think we'll start to see again with this disease. I, I've I've said it for a long time. I think the main thing is just the strain it puts on medical infrastructure. And if you've got half the, you know, if you've got a billion people vaccinated and another, you know, X number of hundreds of millions who are naturally immune because they've recently had it and things like that, all of a sudden the strain gets released from a lot of the different medical institutions around the world and it starts to change things a lot. Um, so you mentioned moving on to the next one, which is what else will happen with COVID. Do you think it's, you said you think it's going to be around for years to come, like just because we get vaccinated, just because, um, you know, everything goes well in terms of those rollouts doesn't mean we're saying goodbye to COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's definitely, um, it's going to be a circulating disease as they say, uh, endemic disease and, uh, you know, it'll probably be around for, I mean, 
probably around for 100 years. There, there's actually like an uh, interesting question, I think, which is like uh, there are other coronaviruses, which are it's the cold, right? Common cold mm-hmm. is a coronavirus. And uh, there's some thinking that, uh, you know, the virus is mutating. Uh, and uh, naturally, over time, you know, uh, certain viruses like Ebola, uh, it's a famous example, right? They burn out because they tend to kill the host before they can infect other people right so coronavirus uh it has some lethality but keep in mind it's only like one two percent or something like that and most of those are you know older and sicker patients uh so it has some lethality but uh you know over if basically if it becomes a disease that's endemic that's always spreading it's going to mutate there's gonna be different variants and the variants that tend not to kill their hosts are probably going to be more favored evolutionarily so sure. so like uh this is just like a gut feeling i have uh and it's not even the ones that don't kill uh this is kind of a theory i developed it's not even the ones that don't kill it's the ones that don't make you that sick because imagine if you get a uh you know some kind of bug like uh, COVID or something else or the flu or something and you get really really sick right the the ones that get make you really sick are the ones that tend to uh uh, kill people because some of those people are not going to make it right but i think they also probably don't spread as much and this is just like gut theory of mine i haven't read this anywhere because if you're sick you tend to be immobile you kind of even animals that are sick tend to isolate themselves like away from their pack or pride or whatever uh and because you're just you can't move you're so sick you're like literally just like like laying down and trying to recover for days right so you tend not to spread the virus very much so my theory is that we're already seeing this like a uh, new variant in England, you know, they've found that yeah. spreads more. And I think over, it's just a theory, but you know, evolutionary biology is not my specialty or anything, but my theory <laughs> is that, you know, it could be that the colds we have now were actually like coronavirus, you know, 10,000 years ago or something. And when they much more lethal epidemic, forms. Yes. Yeah? And then, but over time, if they're around for thousands of years that you tend to select, the variants that are not so lethal because they spread better so evolutionarily they reproduce better right they just like any animal the ones that reproduce better tend to be their offspring survive and the the ones that are make you really sick well some of those people die but then even the people who don't die they don't spread a lot because they're just laying at home and so the ones that you go you still go to the office and you spread it around uh you know they make you sick uh, but not that sick those are the ones that probably is going to stay around so it could be that you know over time that the uh, it'll become a lot less lethal but i think that's probably we're talking like decades or hundreds of years or thousands of years you know yeah. if you look at human viruses uh it's like that one other interesting thing and sorry i'm kind of rambling going off on a tangent no, no, no. keep going but uh one other i think really cool thing i haven't seen mentioned but i i read a book sci-fi book that had this idea in there is uh you know so we have uh, uh you know covid started around a year ago and then very rapidly the genome was sequenced and it, it was like let's develop a vaccine right so the, the idea are the way we look at a virus like that and we think our you know our current healthcare plan is oh okay there's a virus it makes certain people sick one to two percent of the cases they end up fatal and uh let's get a vaccine and then we you know we develop this liquid that then we spread around through the like cold chain and then everyone gets injected and you develop immunity you know uh uh, we could go through like the mRNA mechanism, how that works is kind of interesting. But, uh, you know, another way you could do it is if you had better science is, okay, there's this virus, it's bad, it kills people. 
and but the people who survive have an immune response and then they they don't get sick right so well let's do instead of designing a vaccine let's design another virus that's similar to that one but it doesn't make you that sick but when and it spreads very effectively it spreads better than covid uh and once you've had it you're also immune to that one and to covid so call it like artificial non-lethal covid or whatever you know yeah and then you just release it in the wild and let it spread and it will spread way better than you can give vaccines it'll like everyone will get a mild cold around the world in a couple months and they're all now immune to covid you know so you could develop like a uh, kind of natural vaccine that i mean obviously there's issues with like consent and stuff because you're just letting it out <laughs> but you can imagine scenarios where let's, like uh, let's make uh eight billion people sick even if they don't want to be no but yeah. I, I think it's an interesting idea for sure i mean um uh, it's an outside the box way to to treat um a disease is to kind of um make someone sick with something less but that still produces a reaction that guards you from the more lethal you know version exactly you know? and you just rely on human to human transmission you don't rely on the healthcare system to spread it you just say it spreads well, twice and as effectively as covid and let there, it out there yeah what you're doing there is essentially speeding up the very evolutionary process that you mentioned in the first part of your uh of your spiel which i think that's uh it's a pretty interesting idea for sure because uh, i mean most most things that i've read have said that this was not a question of if but when and the next one is also not a question of if but when right this will happen again and uh i mean i think one thing that has proved um pretty true is that those countries that had experiences with outbreaks and viruses before, namely a lot of East Asian countries, have fared a lot better uh, than those countries, especially in Western Europe and America, places like that, uh, that didn't have the experience with it. Despite having all of the technology, the infrastructure and everything else, it's having lived through it once or twice, you tend to know a little bit more about what to do, right? Um, so the interesting thing that I think will be now we know what happens kind of not worst case scenario but kind of worst case scenario i mean you can argue whether this was the worst case or not the worst case i mean it's lethal but it's not super lethal as you said um but maybe that's a bad thing because it means that it's stuck around for a lot longer what do we do to start preparing for the next go around right if we spend the next six months and maybe a year vaccinating people and kind of understanding what the next couple of years will be like with COVID in our lives. And maybe it's the next hundred years where COVID's still in, in everyone's life. But what lessons do we take from the last 12 months and the next 12 months? How are we gonna start preparing uh, our countries, our cities, um, our medical infrastructures for the possibility of a future pandemic? And outside the box thinking, like you just said, right? Which is, uh, let's create something that's less lethal and spread it around if it's going to help, right? Um, th those will be interesting questions that, and at the very least, I think that COVID will spark a lot of medical uh, debate, right? Whether you're talking about how vaccines are developed, since clearly you can do it in a shorter time, right? Because we, I mean, a lot of people have been stunned that we've been able to get through this in, in less than a year where normally it's like four or five years, but how vaccines are developed, how 
medical attention is given, prioritized with different groups of people. Um, so I think there will be some changes for sure that come after COVID. Um, and I'll be interested to see what they are. I don't think we have any real idea what they're going to be. Uh, the first thing I think that will happen once we start to see a lot of vaccinations and, and uh, everything else, when it starts to let up a little bit, uh, I think travel will start to come back. And I was actually, we went on a bike tour yesterday and was talking with the guide and, you know, his, uh, he's actually a, an engineer um, with BMW here in Istanbul. Um, but he does this, these kinds of bike tours and other kinds of tours as a side hobby. And he's, we got into the discussion whether we think travel will be coming back uh, in 2021. I tend to think that it will. I think that now we have, we understood, we understand now more than ever, the things that are important to us. Um, and we're not going to take for granted a lot of the things that we did before. And I think travel falls into that category. Um, we all, you know, just kind of uh, took it as a, uh, as a fact that I can, as long as I have enough money, I can go wherever I want to go, whenever I want to go there. But the last, you know, year, you've been kind of confined to your state, to your city, to your country, whatever. Uh, we've got lots of problems with borders and things opening up. But I think it will come back pretty strong. You, you agree with me or you, you have a different opinion? So I think uh, I'll give again, I'll do the classic dodge again. I think the restrictions are going to be lifted uh, relatively quickly. I agree with you on that, at least for people who have been vaccinated. And you might have to show proof of vaccination or something to cross borders. You know what I mean? But uh, I think you're right that uh, the, the your ability to travel I think is going to be, uh, you know, is going to come back uh, quite quickly. At the same time, I think there there have been just some fundamental structural changes uh, uh, that are going to last. And, uh, you know, some of them are just basic, like people have gotten more familiar with like Zoom and uh, FaceTime and all, you know, uh, remote methods of communication. So I think for some people, the, you know, literally they're like, especially older people maybe had never used those technologies before so you know there there's the natural question of do you need to travel right if i can like just instead of going to see my relatives maybe i'll just facetime with them more maybe i'll go see them once a year but i won't go twice a year you know uh and the same thing for business travel right so like we've already seen that where businesses are very cost conscious and i think they've realized they can do things without spending money on business travel, then why are we, why were we spending all that money on business travel? So in a business, you have to justify the cost, right? And I think uh, it's going to, they're going to make you justify it. So uh, working in a business, I can tell you, there are going to be questions about, do you need to go to that conference? Like you didn't go last year during COVID. How did that hurt you last year? Or how's it going to help you now? Tell us why you need to spend that money, you know, so you're gonna have to justify it. And, uh, and lastly, I'd say on the borders and migrant issue and everything i was thinking about this because uh you know as you know living in russia uh russia is actually a lot of people don't know this but it has the second largest number of uh you know foreign citizens living there in the world after the united states so migrants mm -hmm. uh, so but i saw the figures the recent figures that uh, around half of those have left in the last year so russia wow. historically had around 11 million migrants you know the population of 145 million so almost 10 percent of the country um, that so 145 million is citizens, but on top of that, there's like 11 million migrants, and uh, 
this it's now down to like five to six million. So, and those five to six million people left, you know, uh, most of the, that's like Central Asia and Caucasus are the places, you sure. know, for, former Soviet Union, a lot of those people moved to Russia to work because it has a strong economy. So same reason why a lot of people from Latin America moved to the US. Right? Uh, and those people, you know, uh, if migration has issues, like people are going home and that we're not moving around, those people like get on with their lives and now they're leading different lives than they were before. And so, so basically my point is if you open the border tomorrow, those 5 million people aren't just going to come back. You know what I mean? Like uh, sure. some of them might, but some of them probably have moved on at this point. And so I think you're going to see some of the demographic kind of migratory changes that have happened are permanent, or at least it's going to be really hard take time to recover. It's not going to come back in a year. And, uh, you know, I think you probably understand that you're in Turkey now. So uh, I know you're planning on being there like six months or maybe potentially maybe longer. But imagine if you were there as of last March and it was like 18 months or 24 months. At, at some point, it's like, well, I kind of moved on. And uh, that vision of, you know, where I was before is no longer really kind of like, you know, life just happened. And um, so I think the, some of those migratory trends uh are probably not going to come back so while, while i think the travel restrictions i think you're right are going to be lifted people are going to be able to travel some of life has kind of moved on whether that's in the business world or yeah immigration etc and uh that's not just going to go back to normal you know yeah yeah that's true um i think that's an another interesting question that i mean when I said travel, I was thinking more about recreation, but that's also even just kind of immigration, right? Which actually leads into the next question, which is what what is work going to look like? And I think you're right when uh, when work becomes more mobile and when people kind of change where they're living and how they're living, then I think that actually has a huge effect on travel as well, but even on where people live. Yeah. So uh, now, a lot of those people I think you mentioned in terms of Russia going home, a lot of that work was, um, you know, kind of uh, more low skilled labor, right? Uh, working in, in factories or construction companies, uh, you know, yeah. service industry, things like that. And the service industry suffering as much as it has laid off a bunch of people. So you essentially, well, I cannot work in, you know, in Azerbaijan as easily as I cannot work in Russia. So why don't I go home? something like that. That being said, I, I do think that you're right. Like when people uh, leave a place and they're outside of that place for a while, there's the tendency to just start building your next life. And actually, I think if you asked a lot of those people, uh, they probably wouldn't have wanted to work in Moscow anyway. They'd much rather be in their home countries near their families uh, and things like that. So if they go back and start building their lives, I don't know that they're going to turn around and come back. Similarly, I think in terms of the next question, what will work look like? I think if work starts to kind of evolve very quickly into the thing that has been over the last year, not that it's going to be fully remote. I think it will be some sort of hybrid version uh, for, you know, your average white collar worker. I think the average company had zero days, uh, you know, remote before you know, maybe a half because there's some companies that have one day a week or something like that. But I think you'll start seeing more of an average of two days a week, two days a week remote, uh, maybe more, maybe less, who knows. But I think you're going to start seeing remote um, 
work as a much more common aspect and even something that attracts talent um, and uh, allows companies to even cut cost with office space and things like that. I think that's going to, it's going to be something that's a long-term trend. I don't think that's going to go away. I think there are lots of benefits on both the employer and employee side. Uh, I think right now in boardrooms, virtual boardrooms across the world, people are debating about it and thinking about it. Um, what are the benefits from the employee perspective, from management perspective? Can we do it? Is it going to be as efficient? And how many people want to do it? Um, and I think that then will change what cities look like, what certain countries look like, right? Um, if you can, I mean, even in America now, uh, I even when I was home uh, this past December, I had some people ask me like, why do you choose to live in, in other countries and things like that? And um, one of the reasons that I expressed to them um, was, you know what, I, I, I do love what I do. Uh, I do it in other countries because I think it's very useful, but cost of living, cost of living in America, like I told them, you know, you can, you work for a mobile phone company, like in Russia for my, for my two iPads and my, and my phone, uh, all the data that I could possibly want. I spend like $12 a month, maximum, yep. maximum, uh, on, you know, on, uh, on the data for my cell phone plans. And that is un unbelievable to most Americans and most people who live in, even in Western Europe. So, like if you can be, uh, if you can work for an American company as an American, but go live in, whether it's Mexico or, you know, Thailand or Eastern Europe, someplace like that, why would you not think about it, right? And now before it was not possible, and now there is that possibility, or at least kind of that lingering idea that it might be possible. So I think that's going to be one of the bigger shakeups about work is, we're going to have that debate by the end of the year with a lot of big companies. Yeah. Do what is going to be the remote work policy and is it going to be something that companies embrace uh, or that they try and kind of get rid of after a year, a year and a half of craziness. What do you think, whether it's that or something else about work, what do you think work's going to look like um, as the year progresses? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you nailed it already. So I'll just kind of like reinforce what you've already said. But uh, I would say the first, just, you know, to always keep in mind, uh, at, you touched on this and, and I think it's really important that uh, there are different types of work, right? And so manual labor, low-skilled labor, um, service jobs, like even things like healthcare workers, et cetera, that has to be done in person, right? Uh, you can't do that remote. So uh those jobs are going to continue to be in person. And I think what we're going to see is uh, other jobs, though, the ones that can be remote are, I think you're absolutely right. They're going to shift more towards remote. Maybe not, not even maybe. They're probably not fully remote. You know, I think larger companies are not going to go fully remote. Certain small companies, maybe, you know, if you're an individual entrepreneur, uh, proprietor, you sole proprietor, you could do it fully remote. But uh Anyways, there's going to be some kind of hybrid. Uh, the smaller the company, probably the more towards remote it's going to be if it's a knowledge-based kind of job. Uh, but uh, in-person jobs, you know, it's still probably the majority of jobs in the world are probably not able to be switched to remote, I would guess. Sure. Uh, but, you know, a big chunk of them, and especially up 
the value chain, you know, the more knowledge based the job is, the more it can be transferred remote. So uh, it's actually going to probably increase economic disparity even more. And it's an it's an additional benefit. Even if you don't get paid more, it means you have a kind of lifestyle and flexibility that certain unskilled labor they don't have. Right. So it's going to increase that kind of disparity in society. But I do think, you know, as someone who falls in that category, it's really cool and I really enjoy it. And I think the you absolutely nailed it that uh, it allows extra freedom in terms of location. And so we're already seeing that uh, like in New York City and Manhattan and in uh, San Francisco, there's been a huge exodus of people who uh, live there uh, towards the suburbs or cities that are a couple hours away. Because imagine even if you, you know, typically say uh, if you're a knowledge worker and you work, say, in San Francisco, or in Silicon Valley, you know, the South, uh, you know, there's always this balance of real estate cost is high, close to the business headquarters and stuff. Uh, so you want to save money, but the further away you go, the longer the commute, right? But imagine you're only commuting like once or twice a week. Well, now the equation kind of changes. It's like, I could probably live further away and because I don't mind driving an hour, hour and a half, two hours uh, you know, if it's only twice a week, if it's five times a week, I mind, right? That's a lot of time. Sure. But if I'm not commuting that much, or I think some companies, mid-sized companies might even do like some kind of team building event, like every other week or once a month or something, you know? So you could even live in a different city. You just fly in for a day or two, maybe spend one night there at a hotel. Uh, I think big companies, I think you're right, are going to be one day, probably it's going to be a lot of them. Some of them might be two days. Smaller companies, mid-sized companies might be a lot more flexible. Uh, I think for the smaller companies, yeah, it might be you could live in Thailand and just totally phone it in remote, you know. Uh, and in some ways, there's benefits to that. Like if you if you work in a um, project-driven team, having people on different uh, sides of the world gives you better time zone coverage. And mm -hmm. it means that like, if you say you had two software developers working, just the two of them on a project, you have one in you know, California, one in Thailand, that means one can do work, uh, you know, in the morning and day, and then hand it off to the other one for to continue the working in the kind of the night shifts, you know, and sure. you speed up the project development time cycle that way, right. So there are some like benefits to that kind of thing and other flexibility, and obviously it makes employees happy. And I think we're like, there's no question we're going to see it. And working in finance, you know, I work in finance in a big company. Uh, the reason I think this is definitely going to happen is because it's in the company's interests because they care about the costs for the stuff as yep. you as you already flagged. So I think the companies themselves in a purely self-interested financial kind of point of view from that point of view, uh, they are interested in making this happen. So it's in their financial interests. The employees like it. Uh, I think everyone's interests are aligned. And so that's why it seems pretty clear uh, it's gonna happen. That said, I would just uh, to add one more thought. I would never, you know, personally, I feel pretty strongly, I would never uh, make the argument that technology can replace human to human face to face interaction. And I think people sure. who work closely with other people or in education, et cetera, they understand this, that um, video is not as good, you know, as face to face. Uh, email is not as good as phone, phone's not as good as video, video is not as good as face to face, right? So uh, I think the, the value of having people together uh, there is some real uh, productivity enhancement you get from doing that, like having a small team that works efficiently and they're sitting together. They can share ideas better. They collaborate better. You know, they can uh, deliver results better than if you have them spread out. Uh, so I think in certain you know areas that might matter more than others, 
so it's a balance, you know, it depends on what exactly, what kind of business, what is the activity is fear of business. Uh, and maybe you can do it some of the time and some remote some of the time. But uh, I think the overall trend though is definitely gonna be um, towards uh, remote work. Uh, and I think the, I think you're absolutely right. The average is gonna be one to two days. I would have said the same figure. So uh, yeah. let's, let's hope we see that. I, I totally support it. I enjoy it actually. No, I think you're right that um, it can't replace it, but I think that's why you're going to see a hybrid, right? And I don't know, I've talked with some, uh, some corporate groups, some clients of mine in terms of what that hybrid like might look like. I mean, even if you're talking about like, um, you could do it where it's one to two days a week, or you could do it where it's one week out of six, right? So you can live in Sochi, um, like one of our friends is doing right now and basically live there but one week every two months you go and you're in the office for five days or six days or whatever um, on the ground forming those relationships that I think only face-to-face -face interaction uh, can kind of create and yeah I, it will be interesting to see exactly what form it takes and I think that's that will be the work question of the, not just the next year, I think of the next decade is how that plays out. But I think corporations, as much as they want everyone to believe they're good kind of community citizens, they're in it for themselves. They're in it for the dollar uh, ultimately. And it's in their financial best interests to understand this trend and, and even to embrace it, right? Um, because I mean, even, one of the things I've talked about is if you are a Moscow company and you're looking for a particular kind of, let's say, lawyer or engineer or, or you know, some design engineer, someone who can work remotely. Uh, if you're in Moscow, then you have to look in that city of 15 million. But if you're just looking for um, a, you know, engineer, design engineer that speaks Russian, well, now all of a sudden, if they don't have to be in Moscow, your search has opened up to so many more people, right? Yeah. Um, maybe not even native Russians, maybe people who just speak good conversational Russian, but are from another country, whether it's Western Asia or even Eastern Europe, something like that. All of a sudden you can get someone who perhaps is a better candidate, maybe living in a place where the cost of living isn't so high so that you can pay them less, right? There's so many different advantages for companies that I don't see this going away anytime soon. Yeah, and uh, just to add one uh, final thought, the uh, that point you just made, I think is actually huge that uh, this actually increases the uh, discoverability of talent. So yeah. as you can imagine, you might be someone who's really good, but uh, I mean, imagine if you're a really good, uh, um, you know, programmer or lawyer or something in, uh, you know, living in like Wichita, Kansas. Well, you probably weren't, historically going to get a job with apple or google but now maybe you could and maybe you fly in like once a month to do the networking the face-to-face -face time you know yeah. uh, as that aspect of your job but maybe 90 percent of your work is actually you know on your own it's individual work and or by you know some co collaboration by email or other forms of collaborative tool but the face-to-face -face time you know the meetings and stuff you don't need that much uh so you do that once in a while anyways there are really good people out there who historically have not you know, they've gone untapped and especially across borders, you know, maybe you, there's an amazing person in South Africa that Google should be hiring or whatever, you know? So I think, uh, uh, yeah, this expands the ability of those, that talent to be discovered and to be competitive, uh, to compete for jobs. So I think companies can tap 
better talent and they can probably save money or not probably they can definitely save money uh in the process both on the salary side but then on the like office footprint and all that side too so uh, yeah. i think it's in their interest and i think they will that's why they'll support it and i think the employees enjoy it too so i think it's going to happen yeah that's actually we'll bypass question eight for at least for a little bit maybe we'll get back to it because that, that brings me to nine at least in my so the question is what advances in tech will we see and i think that that the idea of remote communication right distance communication that's going to be i mean you saw what what company in the last nine months has benefited more than the company we're using to record this podcast zoom yeah uh I think you're going to see huge, huge advances in that technology, meetings, uh, collaboration software. I'm not sure what's going to come of it um, in terms of how you can make it uh, better. Like you're never going to get to where it's as good as meeting someone in person. That's absolutely true. Uh, I think uh, for as many people as I have met around the world face-to-face, -face, you don't get that. Um, I don't know, personal attachment, the relationship only from digital communication, no matter how good it is. That being said, I think there's money to be made and I think there's technology to be improved in this arena. And I think people are going to look at Zoom, they're going to look at the future of work and they're going to say, if I can create something that makes this way of life, working from one place and living in another, or working for a company that's based in one place while living in another, or being part of a digital or a remote team. If I can make that easier and better, then I can be, it's kind of like Elon Musk, who I saw today surpassed, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bezos as the richest man on earth. Uh, like Musk, he, you know, he has all of these great ideas, but his idea actually, uh, as far as I understood it with Tesla was, actually to become the supplier of batteries, right? He wanted to perfect the battery operation for electric car batteries more than anything else. It's kind of, if you could create that perfect electric car battery, that's the future of transportation. So that's how you can become, you know, uh, successful. I think that idea can be transplanted into digital communication. If I can make working from far away easier for companies and for employees, then there's, there's many different successful lines of work to be had there. And I'm not sure exactly, again, what kind of advances we'll see, but because I think we're gonna deal with COVID easily until the end of the year, but probably even beyond, and because companies will start to announce and embrace remote work, I think you're going to see some progress in this sphere. Do you think, is there a particular sphere or advancement that you think is gonna be coming along? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know the specific, <laughs> uh, specific technologies or whatever. You could probably make a lot of money, like on the stock market. Like if you invested in Zoom a year ago, you'd be quite doing quite well right now. Uh, oh, I can only imagine. But uh, I think you're exactly, you're definitely right that the um, on the work side, it's this communication. Uh, you know, I think we're just at the kind of cusp of where this could go because if you think about Zoom. Zoom really doesn't do all that much. Like it's just <laughs> no, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't do much, but it does it well. So that what Zoom yeah. did is it made video chat easy and effective because video chat was always like hard to configure, hard to set up. Uh, you know, Apple did it well with FaceTime, but 
you like half of people don't have an apple device more than half right and yeah. uh so what zoom did is like let's get an app that goes on all platforms and you just like click set up a meeting and then someone clicks the link and boom you're in a chat with up to like whatever 30 people and uh so you know no one had done that it's kind of a crazy because actually you could have probably done it 10 years ago or 20 years ago like the technology is not that uh like uh, aggressive but no one had really done the customer experience in a way that made it easy to video chat you know and so sure. that's what zoom did across all use cases kind of you know whether it's from a phone or a tablet or computer or windows android ios you know they did it all and so they kind of built a like a perfect uh leveling you know field playing field for uh for video chat so i think that's just uh that's simple but but it's also you know it's not that imaginative uh in terms of what you could do so i think you're right there are going to be new tools where like you know i don't i don't even know what to speculate but imagine if you had like a shared like work zone so right now it's like if you work remotely it's usually oh okay we'll give you an email account and maybe a remote desktop kind of thing and then we'll also do, do some zoom meetings but imagine if instead it's just like you know some kind of uh you know you run an app and then you have a voice uh you know uh headset if you want it that's always on with the other team members yeah so almost like a, a walkie walkie talkie kind of thing where yeah or you, don't even you press can button. kind it's of always on you can mute it if you want but like if you just want to make it so like you're in the office together, you just leave it on for like seven hours. You shoot the shit. You talk about how your weekend was and everything. It's not a phone call because like it's just always on, you know, it doesn't right. cost anyone anything. You don't have to like go out of your way to set up a meeting. It's just kind of like, oh, these like six people are always have a voice line if they as long as they don't mute it. It's always available, you know, uh, and so stuff like that. Or you have a shared desktop. So everyone sees the same stuff. Right. So it's like uh, say so you have six desktops, but everyone has access to all of them. So it's like, oh, I see Mike's working on this document, you know, and uh, uh, and I see what he's doing or something, you know. And uh, anyways, there's different ways you can imagine how that might work. Uh, co co production of uh, you know deliverables, or if you want to use the buzzwords. So uh, yeah, I think those are going to be the new tools. And then on the consumer side, I think we're going to see, uh, you know, uh, this is nothing new, but I think we're going to see a continued uh, kind of explosion in uh, e-commerce so you mm -hmm. know the amazons and the door dashes and all that uh and and the other thing i was gonna say like DoorDash, is um the uh delivery and other services so i think you're gonna yeah. see you know uh, some really interesting ideas around uh delivery and you know i've been watching i've been living abroad for years now but i've been watching us tv recently and like the amount of ideas that are like cool uh, being advertised now on national us tv and you're like whoa i would never thought of this like i saw one the other day i forget the name of the company they sell um uh eyeglasses so for people who need prescription glasses mm -hmm. uh and they deliver so it's it's kind of like a you know uh um uh zappos like the shoe company you know okay like that yeah, kind yeah. Of model. delivery only but it's like same next day and like they you know it's easy to do the return it's free uh but they also have an app uh which they show on the ad it's pretty cool and it you just do a selfie it's a video and you can choose any of the the frames and it puts it on your face in the app so you can see what it would look like yeah sure know? and uh and so then like you know and they have some measurement system to see how big your head is and stuff and so like then you you're like oh i like this one and you in the app you press the button and it gets delivered tomorrow if you need to return it it's free you know and so i think we're gonna see a lot more of those kind of for every aspect of life you're gonna see these like convenient 
like uh you know uh, remote kind of uh, ways to do things that in the past it would have been a two-hour trip to the you know eye doctor and then like a separate thing on trying on different frames and you know talking to the assistant of like what might look good on your face etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think you know we're going to see uh, a lot more of that uh, going forward and um you know i think it's it's really cool actually i think like you know covid is a tragedy it's terrible but in like a lot of ways it's kind of sped up some of these trends these internet trends we already had that are going to bring a lot of benefit to a lot of people no i think that's right i think that um it basically hit the fast forward button in a lot of different areas i mean we talked about work um and i think you're right in terms of like consumer tech the things that can be delivered i mean even just thinking about moscow what the lockdown was like in March versus what it would be like if they, not that they're going to lock it down again, obviously not, but uh, what it would be like if they did now. I mean, the Yandex uh, app has gotten 10 times better just in like seven months, right? Eight months, nine months. It's so, so much uh, easier to use. Um, there's more things, you know, the grocery delivery and things like that. Actually, it was kind of funny speaking of uh, DoorDash, um, my mom asked my sister to buy like some coffee or something when she was coming from Austin to Corpus over Christmas. And my sister just got on DoorDash and had it delivered. And my mom was like stunned, like what? You can just have coffee delivered to your house? Uh, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. You just get on this app and uh, do this and this and, and you can get almost anything delivered. She's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's pretty simplistic when it comes to some of the things that you can get delivered to your house, yeah. um, without she, ever having yeah. to leave. Yeah. And some of the stuff that's, uh, I've seen just recently, just to, and probably, I don't know who's going to listen to this, but maybe some of the people don't live in Russia, obviously, uh, you know, in the U S they're equivalents, but Russia is actually Moscow in particular is quite developed for these kind of services. And as you know, like one of the, I did this uh, yesterday um one of the services that yandex yandex is kind of russia's google equivalent and they have an app called uh, yandex go and yandex taxi that um they have apps that kind of integrate with each other and so they have a taxi app but one of the things you can do is uh call a courier yeah and it's in the app you just say okay it knows your address obviously because you, if you use it before it says and you say okay i want a courier and it asks okay where to and uh so you know you type in an address it tells you the price of okay the guy's going to come to your door not even you don't have to meet him outside he comes to your door and then he drives over the other address goes to their door and like drops it off in advance it tells you the price it tells you like the estimated time of arrival sure. how long the trip's going to take based on traffic current traffic patterns and it shows you on the map where the route he's going to take and uh, and then it you know when it asks you to put in from your list of contacts who is the person who's going to deliver so they can if there's an issue they can call them and that kind of stuff anyways i delivered something to bodner uh, our friend uh, yesterday uh and it was three dollars three dollars you know and it was like 20 minutes <laughs> for your ride uh and so i was like oh bodner you might like this uh you know it was some bread thing i got and i bought like two of them and i was like dude you might try this bread it's pretty good so he uh you know i sent it off and you know he got it uh, in a couple minutes and uh that's kind of stuff is amazing another one is um grocery delivery which is taking off in the u.s too but in russia so there's a difference between like the scheduled delivery where you got to do it a day or two in advance uh and then no and just the yandex uh yeah uh, yandex lopka, lopka. Right? Yeah, yeah yeah lopka is like a um shelf uh in russian and uh, so there's a yandex has a uh, line yeah called the yandex lopka where 
they do kind of express grocery delivery. And so if you live near one of these, it's a dark store. It's called a dark store because, uh, you know, there are these dark kitchens and stuff too because they don't have a – it's not an actual store that you can't walk in. It's just a warehouse. But it's they're small. They put them around different neighborhoods. And uh, the one near me, you know, if I order – say I wake up and it's like, oh, I only have coffee but I don't have cream or I ran out of eggs. Uh, I can just go on the app and click it. And they deliver within 15 minutes to my house, to my yeah, it's amazing. Know, apartment. And, no, and uh, you can track the courier who's delivering it to you. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things now is Yandex has a uh, marketplace. So they partner with other businesses. Like say you want to buy a uh, TV or, uh, you know, uh, like uh, some clothes or something like shoes, right? They have Yandex marketplace. And what they've done now, this is pretty cool. You'll like this is because uh, in America, if you have your own house, you get your daily UPS or FedEx or whatever, and they can just leave that package, you know, obviously there's risk of theft and stuff people put up cameras and stuff now but you know you just rely on that daily delivery but in a city it's harder because you don't want to leave a package outside someone's like apartments you know it's not it's sure sure risky most people are not gonna do that but what the honest has done now is anything you buy from any of their like retail partners online partners uh if it's like yeah shoes or you know uh, electronics that kind of stuff um they will deliver it to their grocery distribution and it will tell you when it arrives there. It might take a day or two. But then once it's arrived, you just you click whenever you want it and they'll bring it within like 15 minutes. So you can wait till the evening and once you're home, you don't have to schedule it in advance. You just wait yeah. and then be like, okay, now that I'm home, I, I I want to deliver that Xbox or whatever. And you click the button and then they're there in 15 <laughs> minutes, you know? So uh, that kind of stuff. We're going to see so much more of that, I think, in the next like uh, year or two. And uh, it was already well, and, going on, but like the people are just more open to it now, I think, than they were before, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see just generally a lot of this, one, consumer tech that is basically you can do from your home. But I also think, you just mentioned Xbox. I think we'll see in the next years, it might not be in 2021, just more things targeted at, at like home life. Right. Uh, you know, we didn't spend, at least in the U.S., nearly as much. I, I think it was like 60 percent of uh, the year on year spending in the service industries. But we overspent on consumer products because you're sitting at home. Uh, you got this excess money if you if you're still working, that is. Uh, and you end up buying a bunch of different stuff. Right. I need a more comfortable chair. Uh, you know, why not buy that gaming system? Whatever. I think home kind of entertainment. Now, once the pandemic is kind of more under control, I think people will get out and enjoy the world as they did before. And they're probably tired of being cooped up, especially if you're in a place that's locked down right now. But I also do think that people, there's going to be tech and uh, ingenuity put into spending time at home or doing things at home that before you had to get out somewhere and do exercise tech yeah i was gonna say the classic is the fitness tech yeah that's uh yeah that's peloton and etc has has boomed peloton's a great example right like that company also did an absolute killing this year because because of their models so i think if you're if if you're thinking about other things that you can do right um that's that's going to be another area uh i think um so let's let's finish it up. We've been talking for about an hour and a half now. Uh, let's just uh, get into question 10. I know you said you had to think about this when I sent you the questions earlier today. 
one bold prediction you have for 2021. Uh, yeah. I had to chew on this a little bit myself. But uh, what you want to go think? first, so just in case we have the same one, same answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I I struggled because I thought, well, I do think there's changes coming to education. Um, I, I think there's can, changes coming to communication. Um, I think those to end to work and things like that. We've talked about a lot of that. Uh, I think education will be a huge one. But one of the things that I've noticed recently, which I, I and I, it's popped up in the news a lot, but I noticed it because I, for, so for my work, I use PayPal a decent amount. And I started noticing uh, in November, you can buy and sell Bitcoin on your PayPal account, right? So it's basically um, kind of like there's a company that's getting a lot of uh, negative publicity for gamifying um, the stock market. I forget the name of it. It's like Butterfly or I don't know. It's, it's some kind of crazy name. But they've essentially gamified playing on the stock market, which people are criticizing now because people are making stupid trades without realizing that it's yeah, not a game, that it's real money. Trades and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm not in terms of gamifying the stock market, but like PayPal has made it now quite easy to, if you have Bitcoin, to, all right, I can convert it in my PayPal account and then send it to my bank or, or, or do whatever I need to do with it. So I think when you have a company as big as PayPal, um, as global as they are, giving access to Bitcoin, and I've seen numbers that are saying it could, like Bitcoin could get over $100,000 um, per, per one, per one unit. I think you, you know, we, I joked with a lot of people maybe a couple of years ago that Bitcoin is kind of a bubble waiting to burst and, uh, you know, blockchain itself will probably have some form in the future but what will it be who knows i don't know if it's going to be bitcoin or not but it seems to me that cryptocurrency and the fact that it's easier to buy and sell now um i think there's going to be an uptick in how widely used it is one of the other things i've noticed about paypal I, i'm kind of relating the two Almost all American like uh, consumer products companies allow you to play with PayPal. And actually in PayPal, so if you pay with PayPal, you can actually click on a link. So you have like three options, your balance, uh, your bank account that's tied to it, or Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. PayPal is kind of being used as the intermediary to pay for consumer products with Bitcoin. And I think that can be, I'm not sure how much of a game changer it will be in 2021, but I think it's the kind of floodgate that might partially open to the idea of cryptocurrency becoming a much more real thing and commonly used thing in the future. Yeah, uh, luckily that's not the uh, the one I picked, but just to add to that, I can say from the, uh, uh, you know, I work in investor relations and cryptocurrency has just this uh, in their like last several months i'd say like there are major funds now that are are investing it's not really investing it's like a kind of cash but are you know using bitcoin as an instrument in their kind of like uh, capital management processes right so uh, and that i don't think you would have seen that i'm talking big names are now openly talking about that they buy bitcoin and uh yeah. 
you would not have seen that like even a few half a year ago or whatever so uh, i do yeah i totally agree that that trend the cryptocurrency thing is is gaining steam and yeah we're going to see more of that uh the one i wanted to to say that i think is going to um uh be something in 2021 and i'm not sure exactly what form this is going to take but i think uh partly this is because of the events of the last day that we started the podcast with so to bring this full circle um that you know the role of social media in society and how conspiracy theories and other things are spread uh the echo chamber effect etc etc uh and kind of the control of social media the companies have over our personal data i think that's going to become a major topic uh politically uh in the united states it already is in the eu i don't know if you're familiar with like gdpr sure. and some yeah. the, EU, the eu has actually been the global leader on regulating these companies yeah. I mean, actually, if you're in chat groups with European people, especially in the UK and Germany, which I am, there's certain functions that don't work on Facebook Messenger, on right. Instagram, uh, on even on WhatsApp and things like that. And they will tell you, uh, due to the users in this group, certain functions will not work. Blah, blah, yeah. Blah. And there, I mean, there's some basic, like, you know, uh, for people who don't know, the, the most basic examples probably in the EU uh you own your data so you have the right as a eu citizen at any point to say uh to contact uh facebook and say i want you to delete all the data you have on me so uh, all your posts all your photos etc cetera, etc cetera. in the united states you don't have that right they the, facebook owns all that data you do not own it as an individual they let you you know uh do certain things with it but even when you click delete all that does is if say you delete a photo Facebook still has that photo. They don't delete it from their servers. You have no right. Sure. They own the copyright at that point. And, but they, they will remove it from your feed and no one else can see it, et cetera. But internally, they still have it. They store it on their servers and they use it for their big data, like marketing and stuff. So in the EU, you have those rights. Anyways, I think in the US, we're going to see uh, this be a major thing. Potentially, the Democrats will focus on this because uh, it's a political threat even for them. Uh, and and we saw the events of the I, basically I think the events of the last day are going to bring this to the fore, and I think these companies have already realized this is a risk, so they're going to start moving on their own, like independently of the regulators. Uh, I think they're worried about antitrust, you know, being broken up or something like that. So I think you're going to see Facebook and Twitter and everything police more and more of the speech on their platforms, and I think the governments are going to be a favorable. They're going to like that actually. It's not going to be a free speech issue because uh, I think they're in Congress in the U.S., for instance, they're going to support this kind of thing. And so I think we're going to see much more regulation and, uh, you know, uh, monitoring and control of social media, which we haven't seen before. I think in 2021, that's going to be a big theme. So I don't quite know yeah. how it's going to look, but I think that's going to be a big theme for the year. Yeah, I think I think that's probably a, a pretty good idea um, in terms of what will happen. I'll be interested to see how those companies respond. Um, I mean, you saw that basically Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram have already blocked Trump from posting anything until he's no longer president. Yep. Um, and I, I do wonder what the business model is going to look like when, I don't know in the US, uh, in terms of legally, if they're going to be, it would be an interesting challenge, like legally, like if you took it to the Supreme Court, if they passed a law that said your data is your own, 
uh, a law, not a constitutional amendment, but a law that could then be challenged by Facebook or Google uh, or you, you know, whoever else. Um, it would be interesting, a legal question, whose data is that, right? Like if you're, you know, especially considering you, uh, you know, click on the agreement and those kinds of things, but it might be something where again, the companies being forward thinking enough and worrying about their bottom dollar, they change their model a little bit. They tweak yeah. it somehow. Um, you know, uh, you have to pay, uh, you know, $5 a year or something like that. Uh, and we won't use your data at all. But if you, uh, if you want this thing for free, then this becomes the, the cost. I don't know, some sort of kind of idea where they still try to make the profit that they're going to lose from all of the hyper-targeted advertising. You'll, I mean, these companies are pretty smart. They've got a lot of resources. They've got a lot of smart people. I think some of them are forward-thinking enough and they're worried about their consumers kind of backlash, right? Uh, because they don't want either side of the aisle to get too riled up about them. They need both sides in order to maximize profit. So yeah, that, that'll be an interesting one. What social media is going to look like at the end, uh, especially after the last couple of days, who knows? Yeah, I think we're gonna see more changes to social media in 2021 than we have yeah, in uh, half a decade or more. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Well, thank you, Bob. It's good to see you. Good to talk to you. Thanks uh, for having very me. Very interesting, uh, long, long uh, dialogue. If you've made it to the end, uh, whoever's still listening almost two hours later, me and Bob appreciate you taking the time to uh, spend with us. Uh, I'll be back on uh, perhaps this weekend with another guest uh, or early next week. And uh, to everyone out there, have a happy, safe 2021. And until next time, I am a Texan abroad.